Good morning, church. I want to ask if you would to bow your heads and pray with me as we get ready to uh, go into the Word of God and as we look at the, the message we're going to be looking at today. If you would, please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your presence. Lord, I'm, I'm so grateful for the worship that we have been brought into today as we have sing praises to your holy name about all the wonderful things that you have done for us. Lord, we know that we would not even have the breath inside of our lungs if it were not for your grace that allowed us to wake up this morning and be here. I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes so that we can see and our ears so that we can hear and help us to see the beauty of what this day means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was no doubt an extremely exciting day. Now, just a few weeks earlier, they had seen the risen Lord with their own eyes. And the Bible tells us that over a period of about 40 days, Jesus appeared to the disciples several times, telling them all kinds of things, revealing to them things about the kingdom of God, opening their minds to things that they had never seen before. The Bible tells us specifically in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, that on one occasion, while he was eating with them, this is after the resurrection, it says that he gave them this command. He tells them, he said, do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift. Now, for those of you who have been in this series now for several weeks, these words kind of sound a little different now, don't they? Because we've had so much background. But wait for the gift that was, that was promised by my father. Now, when did that happen? That was the promise in the Old Testament. We've covered all of this already, but these are the main passages that come out of uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah, or, or excuse me, Ezekiel. And he says... This gift that was promised about in the Old Testament, go to Jerusalem and wait for that gift. And then he says, the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Now, when did we hear Jesus talk about the gift? Well, that's what we just got through doing in John chapters 13 through 17, where he specifically talked at length about the gift of the Holy Spirit. So with all of that background, he then says, verse 5, for John baptized you with water, but in a few days, a few days from now, you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, today was the day. Today was the new day that Jesus had talked about back in John chapter 14. We talked about that with one of the new things that we can expect as a result of the Spirit. One of those new things was this new day, and the day was the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is the time of year, there were three occasions, three of the seven feast days of Israel where every, uh, everybody went to Jerusalem. It was a big party. And, and, and so there's thousands of Jews that were crammed into the, the old city of Jerusalem. They were gathered around the, the temple to worship and they were all in this small upper room. The Bible tells us there was about 120 people, disciples, followers of Jesus, including the 12, and then it happened. Now, the Bible describes it. it sound, they, they said it sounds like a, like a mighty rushing wind. 
And there appeared what looked like tongues of fire, like little flickers of flames. And it said that they, they appeared upon the heads of all of the disciples that were gathered in that room. Now, you know the story. This is well-trodden scriptures, right? Uh, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. He's filled full of the Holy Spirit. He preaches the very first gospel sermon. Apparently very Holy Spirit-filled because it was very well-received. In fact, by the time he gets to the end, you could hear literally the clamoring of thousands of people that were saying, what shall we do? What shall we do? And in the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, it says, men and brethren, listen, repent, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit, the same gift that you're seeing, witnessing in ourselves as well. Verse 41 goes on to say this, and these are some of my most favorite scriptures in all the Bible. Look at what happens as a result of the presence of the Spirit inside the early church. It says, so then those who had received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Stop right there. Could you imagine baptizing 3,000 people in one day? Good gracious, that would have been a sight. But it says, they baptized 3,000 souls, verse 42, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, I love how the story continues. Listen to this. It says, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all of those who had believed, I'm sure I got it right on the screen. And all of those who had believed were together and they had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as many as might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I cannot help but get excited when I read those passages, man. You know why? Because remember when we got to the book of uh, John chapter 17 last week and we talked about the foundation for Christian unity and how we, we, we unify upon these shared commitments and how that, that Jesus promises to bless us that when two or three are gathered in his name, the promise is, is that he shows up in the midst of it. Well, guess what? That's exactly what you see happening here in the book of Acts chapter 2. You see this, this incredible event that is the answer to the prayer that Jesus gave in chapter 17. Remember the prayer that he gave a long time ago, not, I mean 40, years, 40 days earlier than this, was that they would be one 50 days earlier than this. I'll get it right in a minute. 50 days prior to this is when Jesus said those words. My prayer is that they be one. My prayer is that they have a shared experience of the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that through that shared experience, they will understand my presence in the Christian community, in the kingdom of God. And you see that happening right here. If you think about it, there's people from all walks of life. There's people here from, from different backgrounds. You know that because of all the different languages that are being spoken. But they had a shared commitment to grow in their relationship with God. They had a shared commitment to carrying out the will of Jesus Christ. And because they were living in love and they were living in unity, they were committed to the mission. What did Jesus do? He manifested himself. 
He showed himself in the midst of the community. And when you read the rest of the book of Acts, what do you see? You see a church that is on fire for the Lord, and they are very much interested in glorifying God by showing that Jesus is real in their community. Remember, that's exactly what Jesus had prayed about back in John chapter 17. They will know that you are Christians by what? By your love. And here are forebears, the first century church, the very beginning, the birth of the church, you see these things happen exactly the way Jesus wanted them to happen. Now, um, obviously with this being the, the event, the place where the Holy Spirit is first poured out at the beginning of the church, there's all kinds of things that I would love to talk about. And as I was writing the sermon this week, I realized that I could do a three-part sermon on the day of Pentecost. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But there's so many things we could get into. For example, number one, we could talk about the prophetic implications of what you're reading right here in this passage. If you notice, Peter quotes from the, the prophet Joel. And, and when he's describing these events, it says that in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. He says this is that. But when you go back and read that passage, that's a last days passage. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. What they experienced in the first century was a foretaste of what's to come. In other words, it's going to happen again, folks. The day of Pentecost is going to happen again. But we don't have time to get into that. But we can also talk about the miracle of speaking in tongues. There's a lot of people that talk about speaking in tongues today. We could talk about whether it happens today, whether it doesn't happen today. Here's one thing that's very interesting about the fact that he talks about tongues is that the miracle is not even in the tongues, it's in the hearing. Did you notice that? They heard them speaking in their own language. But see, that's another topic. We don't have the time to get into that either this morning. And then we could also talk about how the day of Pentecost is actually a fulfillment of Mount Sinai. Did you know that 1,500 years prior to this, on the day of Pentecost, was the day that God gave the law of Moses to the people of Israel? Did you realize this? It was on that day, 1,500 years earlier. Well, what did the Old Testament prophets tell us? They said, one day there's going to be a new covenant. It's not going to be like the one that you broke, the one that was given on the first day of Pentecost, 1,500 years earlier. On this day, I'm going to take this new covenant. I'm going to write my law on your heart. Well, guess when that happens? On the day of Pentecost. This is them receiving the law of Moses again. But this time through the presence of the Holy Spirit. But again, we don't have time to talk about all that. Do you realize there's so much here in this passage? We could do a whole series, but here's what we're going to do. I want to focus on one thing that really strikes me about this text, and that is the one thing that I think we desperately need today in the church. You've heard me in the past talk about upreach and inreach and outreach, right? Upreach is all about that vertical relationship that we have with God. That's all about learning how to receive His love, how to walk in the Holy Spirit and reciprocate that love back to Him in worship and in service. But then we move over to inreach. And what is inreach? Inreach is all about how we relate with one another. How every single one of us who are walking in the Holy Spirit learn how to walk in the Holy Spirit together as a community, as a church. So what I want us to talk about this morning is the very dynamic that the Spirit Himself creates among us. It's something that the Bible calls fellowship. Fellowship. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2 verse 42 if you're not already there. And I want us to read this one more time. Acts 
Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It tells us about this dynamic, this unique dynamic that the Holy Spirit creates among Christians. And it's a dynamic that is expressed through this word fellowship. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. Now, we know what that is, right? That's, that's the writings of the apostles. They're, they're, they're paying attention to Bible study, to Scripture. They're listening to the Scriptures in light of what the Holy Spirit is revealing to the apostles. We understand that. So it says, they've continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. We understand both of those things. We just got through doing that a moment ago in our own worship service. But I want us to focus in on this word, fellowship. Fellowship. It's our shared experience. And if you want to write down definitions, here's a good definition for you. Fellowship is the shared experience of the gift of the Holy Spirit among us as the community of God. Let me say it one more time. Fellowship is the shared experience of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God among us in the community of God. It forms what the Bible calls koinonia. That's the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia. And, and, and I want to spend a little time talking about that this morning. What is fellowship? What is fellowship? What does it matter? Does it matter? Is what we experience today fellowship? Are we experiencing fellowship at the East Side Church of Christ today? And if so, great. If not, can we do better? Let's talk about that. So let's ask the first question this morning. What is fellowship? You know, fellowship can be a, a little bit hard word to define because it, it brings to mind a lot of different things to a lot of people. But when we tend to think of fellowship, what do we tend to think of? In America, we think of one thing. Somebody say it. Food, All right? We tend to think of fellowship typically in churches as getting together to have a meal, whether it be a, a potluck or a, what we call a, a fellowship meal or, or whatever. It's, it's getting together to do things like that, right? See, we tend to think of the, the social aspect. It's a potluck. It's a worship at the park kind of a thing or whatever, and we call that fellowship. Now, listen, those things are important. We just got through forming the fun committee so that we can have more of that at our church, so I'm not disparaging that whatsoever. But here's what I want to argue this morning. Fellowship goes much, much deeper than just get-togethers. Fellowship goes much deeper than just get-togethers. It's more biblical than that. It, the word fellowship has several different meanings in Greek. Um, each of those meanings, if, if you look at them, they kind of give us a different shade, a different picture of what fellowship is. So with that in mind, I want to look at these. The first meaning, the, the first meaning of the word koinonia in the New Testament can mean this. It means partnership. It means participation. See, in God's kingdom, there's no room for Lone Ranger Christians. You realize this? You're not supposed to be by yourself. I, I get rattled by the question all the time as Christians, do we have to go to church? That's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. It's not about do we have to go to church. If you're a Christian, you're the church, <laughs> right? And that's a plural word. That's not a singular word. That's a plural word. You're not a church unless you're meeting with at least two or three, according to the scriptures. So to be the church means that we come together. It means that we are partners in this thing together. Jesus did not call Tim Brown to fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus called Tim Brown 
and you, and you, and you, and you, and all of us to go out and fulfill the Great Commission. And this idea of fellowship runs through everything we do, whether it be Sunday morning worship, vacation Bible school, a youth retreat, evangelism, um, you know, simply getting together to do a work day. Everything we do in the church should be about participation with each other. Fellowship should be about partnering with one another. I get frustrated, just like every other minister does. When we have activities and things that are going on at the church, sometimes it's like pulling teeth to try to get people to volunteer and be a part of this. Listen, God has not called 10% of the church to do 90% of the work. God has not called you to come here and sit in the pews and make sure that those pews stay warm. That is not the calling that God has on your life. God has called every single person person to have a ministry. And if you don't know what that ministry is, listen, that's okay. I'm not knocking you if you don't know how to get involved and do ministry at the church. But if you don't know how to get involved, ask one of the leaders how to get involved. Because we need 100% participation. Amen. And by the way, a partnership or participation doesn't just involve the work that we do. It also involves the daily living that we have with Christ. See, without you, I can't live this walk that I need. And I can be honest with you. Can I be transparent for a minute? I need more men in my life to help me be accountable. I'm asking for it. Okay? Because I can't do this on my own. Let me tell you something. Do you know I can feel your prayers? There are weeks that go by that I feel like I'm being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And somebody will call me that week and they'll say, you know, I've been praying for you. I need that. And guess what? You do too. Because there's times in your life, Augustine, guess what? You're going to be weak, you're going to struggle, and you're going to feel like falling down. And you're going to need strong brothers and sisters to come and stand by your side and hold up your hands and help you keep walking. Amen? But guess what, Augustine? My day's coming too, and I need you to stand beside me. I'm not just picking on you, but I'm talking about all of us. We need to participate in each other's lives. That's the first meaning of koinonia. I picked on you, Augustine, because I know you'd be there for me. Amen? Amen. Here's the second meaning. The word fellowship, believe it or not, also carries the idea of intercourse. Intercourse. And when you think about the term in that way, the, the image that you should have in your mind is the intimate expression of love that takes place between a husband and a wife. If you remember in the Old Testament, the King James Version, I think, handled this very tastefully. It says that Adam knew his wife and they had a child. The word there to know is the idea that we're getting at here. It is an intercourse. It's an intimacy. Now, obviously, when we're talking about it spiritually, it's not the same thing, right? But you understand where the idea comes from. It means that you and I are to have a spiritual intimacy that's just different than what the rest of the world gets to experience. I love the way the Bible uses that phrase. Adam knew his wife because it's this idea of how deep we should go in our relationships with one another. I can tell you what, a lot of churches do somewhat okay with number one a lot of times, but we really start struggling when we get to number two. We really start struggling when we get to number two. And then finally, number three this morning is the idea of communion or community. It means to have something in common. I want you to follow along with me as I read the following passages of Scripture. You ask the question, Tim, what does Christian community look like? What's it supposed to look like? I think it's supposed to look like something like this. Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 16. 
Now, this is talking to the church. This is like it's talking to you. Imagine Paul writing this to us in this church right here today. Hey, guys, listen. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And do not be wise in your own estimation. Here's what he said to the Philippian church. Same kind of idea. He says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. When you look at both of those passages, they both have to do with taking the time to love one another enough to consider the other person's needs over and above our own. We are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's what our fellowship is supposed to be. It's a lot more than just coming in here on Sunday morning and having just a handshake and how and how are you. It goes a lot deeper than that. I remember reading somewhere that um, this was one of those uh, church growth type things that comes out every now and then, and it was a study that was done. And it said that um, when somebody visits your church, if they do not build strong relationships within the first six months of them visiting your church, they will exit the back door within six months. And when they said strong friendships, they meant that they have to have at least, and I don't know how they did the stats, but they said within the first six months, if they have not formed a friendship with at least six people in the church, they will most likely leave. Now, listen, you and I know why. Who wants to go to a church and be ignored? But yet, how many times does that happen? We need to make sure that when somebody comes inside this room, we go out of our way to make sure we love them, invite them to, think, invite them to our homes. It, it, listen, I, I've heard a, a person one time say this about evangelism. You need to invite them to your house before you ever invite them to church. You need to grow a relationship with them first and then invite them to church. Okay. But again, this isn't something that we can manufacture. And that's what a, lot of, a problem with a lot of churches, they, they, they try to manufacture koinonia. They try to make koinonia happen by, by their own ways of doing things in the church. But, but the, the, the type of koinonia that Jesus desires comes out of a shared communal experience of the Holy Spirit. It comes out of experiencing Jesus himself as he manifests himself to us in the midst of our gatherings. But again, this is not something that we ourselves can manufacture. Um, see, this is why personal relationship with the Holy Spirit is so important, though. Because we can't have a church that is living the dynamic of koinonia unless individually the majority of us are walking in the Holy Spirit ourselves, laying aside our sins, le- learning how to hear the, the Holy Spirit ourselves. That's why we talked about 95.5 times so much. When a church is walking and in in aware of the Spirit's presence, then they can begin to experience this thing that the Bible calls koinonia. Or to give an example, just go back and look at those first few passages in the book of Acts chapter 2 again. 
the kind of things that they were doing, what they were focused on, the kind of life that they were living, the self-sacrifice that they were doing, the serving that they were engaged in, all of that comes out of a relationship with the Holy Spirit. So again, we think about this fellowship. I want you to read this passage one more time. Because in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, guess what? The early church is still just a humming along. Man, they're doing it. They're doing it exactly the way God wants them to do it. Look at verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. Nobody claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anybody who had need. That's what happens when the church is experiencing the Holy Spirit. So again, when we think about fellowship, we tend to think about the fun activities. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we need those times. But let's remember that we are called to go deeper than that. We are called to partner together in the mission of Jesus Christ, to be spiritually intimate with one another along, to, along the way, and to share true community in Christ. Now, if we know what fellowship is, that it's partnership it's participation, it's intimacy, it's communion, it's community, and we know that it's necessary for the health of the church, well, then let's ask the question this morning. What elements are necessary for building strong fellowship? What is it we're going to require of us is the question that I'm asking in order for us to have fellowship like this. How can we encourage it? Well, in my opinion, there's at least three elements that are necessary to building real community in the church. Three. Now, there's probably more. But there were three that I could find. Let's go ahead and list them up on the board really quick this morning. Number one, this one's kind of obvious, but we overlook it. We got to spend time with each other. We got to spend time with each other. We can't grow deep if we don't have opportunities to get together and spend time with each other, right? So how do we do that? How do we encourage that? Well, I don't know. One of the ways is through the fun committee, right? There's fun things. There's a, we have a, a game night coming up on September the something, something. 23rd, okay, so come, you know, let, come and be a part of that. That's one way that, to grow deeper with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, you know, it's, it, it, the, the thing about fellowship is that it's not something that you can program. It's not really something you can program. We just got to get together more often. We need to get together in each other's homes more often. We need to get together and do more church things together as a family. But fellowship is what happens when we intentionally get together and get to know each other as we walk in the Holy Spirit. Um, number two, we need to spend time with each other, more time with each other. And number two, we need to be sincere with one another. Now, if, if the activities that we do, whether it be ministry activities that we do together, whether it be fun activities that we do together, if those are the, the, the occasions where we can grow deeper in relationships with one another, sincerity is what's going to keep people here. Sincerity is what's going to keep people here. There are a few things in life that will turn people off quicker in church 
than if they feel like they're just a number. You know, people will say sometimes, well, Tim, we need to get the numbers up in attendance. Well, why? What's the purpose? Is the purpose to get the numbers up in attendance because we're, we're fearing, you know, that we, we got to have more money or we need to, we're dying as a church and we just want the, the feeling of having more bodies filling the pews? Like, guarantee you, there's been a lot of churches I've served with in the past and that was their motivation and guess what? Nothing ever happens. But what is our motivation for wanting people to come to church? For wanting another 100 people or 150 people or 200 people? Is it because we want more numbers or is it because we have something to offer them? Is it because we are walking in the Holy Spirit ourselves and we're living in freedom and we're enjoying the fruit of the Spirit and we're wanting them to know the God who has set us free? That's a different motivation. 100% different motivation. But if we are sincere in wanting people to come because we're genuinely concerned for their spiritual growth and for their well-being and we take time to demonstrate that sincerity by getting to know them in small groups or whatever we're doing, serving together, then most likely they will come back and they will stay. And they'll be a part of our congregation. So in church, do people sense that we are genuinely concerned for one another? Do people in here know that you are genuinely concerned for them? Because without sincerity, we'll never build the kind of fellowship that will sustain the church through the long haul. So we need to spend time with each other. We need to be sincere, transparent, real, genuine with one another. And then finally this morning... This is the hard one. You ready for it? This is the one almost hardly anybody, almost everybody struggles with. Number three, we got to be vulnerable with each other. And see, this is where I think the division between those who experience real fellowship, real koinonia, is separated from what the vast majority of Christians in American churches settle for. We can spend a lot of time together. At the same time, we can serve and do all kinds of things, activities together. We can also be sincere in how we treat other people. But unfortunately, even with these, fellowship can still be only surface level. Only surface level. But personally, in my opinion, what God wants for us is something even deeper than that. Even in the area of fellowship, God wants to take us deeper than that. But the problem is, is that a lot of us like to draw imaginary lines with each other, don't we? You know, Roxanne, I will let you in, but I'm only going to let you in so far, right? And a lot of times that comes out of church hurt. That comes out of past relationships. That comes out of personal struggles. Maybe you're struggling with sin and you've you got so much shame and guilt on the inside that you're not letting people in. Or maybe you've been hurt so many times by other people that you don't want to let people in. But we draw these boundaries in our lives. And to some degree, we keep a distance with people. We, we only let people in so far. The beauty, though, is that the Scriptures promise us is that as we become more and more aware of the presence of Jesus in our midst, as we individually become more free in our lifestyle because Jesus is personally in his presence setting us free, that then allows us the freedom to be transparent with one another, to go deep with one another. Being vulnerable, real, and transparent, that's God's will for his church. Amen? So as we close this morning... I want to share one final passage of Scripture that I think sums up this attitude of koinonia in the church. Is the Eastside Church of Christ a church that enjoys great fellowship? I believe we do. 
I can tell you what, I've, I've had more fellowship here than I've had any place I've ever been because of the people that are here. But can we do better? Can we do more? I think we can. My desire for the Eastside Church of Christ is to capture the essence, the excitement, the joy of the first century church. I pray, guys, that we can get together more, that we pray together more. I pray that we will see each other in each other's houses more. I pray for opportunities for small group ministries possibly coming in the future. I pray for, for opportunities for us to get to know one another, to demonstrate sincerity with one another, and even, and even take our fellowship to the next level and be vulnerable with one another and be transparent with one another. And so as I close, I want to end with just this one little statement that Paul makes when he was writing to the Christians that he had uh, labored and ministered to in Thessalonica. He said this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. That's koinonia. That's fellowship. Let's pray. I pray, Father, for... My words that I have stumbled over this morning, Lord, what I desire in my heart of hearts is that all of us would experience the koinonia of the first century church, Lord. And I know, Lord, that that takes an outbreaking of your spirit. And I know, Father, that that requires a lot of us to let go of some things in our lives and to get into some uncomfortable places with other people. But God, it's worth it. It's worth it to be your community. To be a place that is so uniquely different. I was, I remember last night I was coming back in and I, I, could, I told my, my kids and I said, look, do you see that? Do you see those lights out there in the middle of all that blackness? We were on our way back and, and they said, yeah, we see it. And I said, do you remember when Jesus said a city on a hill can't be hidden? And as we looked at the city and saw the lights, God, I'm, I'm reminded of the Eastside Church of Christ. God, I pray that the koinonia in this house becomes so bright that this place becomes a city on a hill that cannot be hidden in Snyder. And so that everyone looks to this place and sees that this is a community of God. I pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. If you need a response, and sing.